Welcome to The Tea Room. I'm Kate Swanell. The trans experience is historically a deeply, deeply pathologised experience. We have been told that we're mentally ill, that, you know, that we're a problem to fix, that we need to be fixed in some way, that being trans has everything to do with hormones and surgery, which it certainly is not. So it's not surprising that clinicians have really heard the myth that trans people are, are mentally unwell as a, as a core part of being who we are. That was Teddy Cook, the Director of Community Health at ACON. Teddy and his colleague Natalie Amos, a research officer with the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University, are co-authors of research about suicidality in trans Australian adults. As part of our series of podcasts to coincide with World Pride, we invited Teddy and Nat along for a chat about gender-affirming healthcare, how it can be protective of mental health, and how GPs are a key to positive trans experiences. Welcome, both of you, and happy Pride. And to you too, Kate. Happy World Pride. We've got Nat with us for a little while longer, so let's talk about the suicidality paper, first of all. You guys are co-authors on this paper that was published last week. The the paper looks at um, suicide ideation and suicide attempt in the past 12 months among trans and gender diverse adults in Australia. Mm-hmm. It comes from Private Lives 3, which is the largest survey of LGBTQ people in Australia. So I think we haven't had in Australia at least a sample size this large to work with and break down the way that we can now with Private Lives 3 data. So we have something around 1,400 trans and gender diverse adults that participated in the survey and were included in this paper. We know from previous research how high the rates of poor mental health are within this community and suicide, including suicide among trans and gender diverse people. So it really was important to look at what are the risk factors, but also what are the protective factors? And that can lead to how do we improve these outcomes for trans and gender diverse people? You found that 62.4% reported suicidal ideation and 95 reported a suicide attempt in the past 12 months. Now, those numbers are hugely greater than for the cisgendered population. What were the biggest risk factors you found? The biggest risk factors for, they're somewhat different between suicide ideation and attempt, but they're also sure. similar. So younger age for both attempts and suicide. So those that were aged 18 to 24 compared to the rest of the group who had higher rates of suicide ideation in the past 12 months and suicide attempt. A really big risk factor, and we know this from other mental health research and other literature in this field, is experiences of discrimination and harassment. Uh, so we found that those that were treated, that, that reported that they were treated unfairly in the past 12 months due to their gender identity or those that had experienced any social exclusion in the past 12 months, uh, that was due to their gender identity entity where more likely to have experienced suicidal ideation as well. So for our audience who are largely GPs, those experiences include in healthcare settings? Yeah, they absolutely. These questions were asked broadly in this research. We do have questions as well about feeling respected in those settings. But this in particular is broadly, but absolutely it can include any setting, whether that's broader community healthcare settings. We do know that there is a a lot of experiences of discrimination in all of these settings. Just to add as well that we found 
that having uh, affirming experiences within health and medical settings was a strong protective factor. You know, that's an important kind of call to action for GPs around that affirming someone within your practice is a strong protective factor against mm-hmm. suicidality and suicide attempts, which is pretty motivating, I would think. But it doesn't have to be big things, does it? It really has to be very basic things. I think mm. sometimes we might get a little bit overwhelmed with the idea of what affirming someone means. It really it just means recognising someone for who they are and respecting that. It doesn't have to be more complicated, you know, recognising someone for who they are, really hearing who they are and then responding to that appropriately makes a massive difference. It really does. Yeah. Nat, what would you like to see come out of the research you've done here for this population? I think what we've been saying around those experiences of affirmation, I think it would be really nice to see this work motivate change within broader community and particularly within healthcare settings to provide that affirming care and not just inclusive, you know, a rainbow flag to say that you're, you know, we're inclusive of your identity is great. It's not indicative of affirming practice. And we've heard that in other sort of qualitative research we've done as well with interviewing and, and focus groups with participants is that they say they tried to access healthcare that said it was inclusive, but they knew nothing about how to treat or affirm my identity. Just really seeing that that education for health practitioners to provide and clinics as well. It comes from the whole clinic to provide that affirming care and affirming uh, interactions with patients. The CPD situation and training situation for GPs particularly in terms of trans and gender diverse health, how has that improved, Teddy? Is it is it getting better? I would say that there is access to so much training. Uh, There's training that ACON does, there's training that comes from ASHAM, provides really great and very highly CPD'd access to training. And there's more coming as well. There's different states and territories, there's different initiatives. I must say Victoria is doing fantastic work with training for GPs. And there's online training that will be coming very soon that is also about assisting prescribers related Mm -hmm. to gender-affirming healthcare with knowing exactly how to do that. And um, when I say prescribers, I really do mean GPs in particular. I think what I've found in terms of barriers, though, can be time for GPs to do that training. I've not yet met a gender-affirming GP that is wanting for CPD. Often they are overflowing with already having CPD points because they're doing a lot of their own development on a regular basis. But yeah, there's certainly lots of training available and it's it's about really making sure that the GPs are aware of that and where to access it and how. There's a yeah. really strong motivator for why a GP might feel motivated to expand their understanding of the trans experience and learn some more specific techniques on what inclusive and affirming practice looks like. The data from this paper tells us really unequivocally that when people can have a good experience within a healthcare setting and they're affirmed for who they are, mm-hmm. they've got better outcomes, longer, better health outcomes and are more able to have a higher quality of life, move through the world in a safe, affirmed way and feel respected as who they are. And a GP has a really, really key role in all of that all of that. I would hope as well seeing the just the high rates of, of suicidality within the community would be a motivator to really do your best to kind of curb those rates and foster that better well-being for those patients. Exactly. Yeah. You know one thing we didn't find in the research? What's that? That there was a that being trans is a risk factor itself. And that's really important to make clear that being trans 
isn't a risk factor for suicidality or suicide attempts. It's all about how we're treated. I'm glad you brought that up, Teddy, because I wrote an article about the study and we got a comment and it basically said perhaps these these people will have higher rates of suicidal ideation and attempts because they're not happy in their own skin. They have mental health issues. They're mental, mentally ill and need help. And I don't think I let that comment through because it just didn't seem very helpful or factual. Or evidence-based. Oh, yeah. <laughs> evidence-based, exactly, and yeah. Evidence from even beyond this study and the other studies we've done with the, with the LGBTQ populations that we have, and we have a young people survey as well, mm. is overwhelmingly discrimination, harassment, assault. These are the reasons for poor mental health. And affirmation and positive experiences with others protect mental health and they lead to greater well-being. Well said. The trans experience is historically a deeply, deeply pathologised experience. Yes. You know, we have been told that we're mentally ill, that, you know, that we're a problem to fix, that we need to be fixed in some way, that being trans has everything to do with hormones and surgery, which it certainly is not. And so it's not surprising that clinicians have really heard the myth that trans people are, are mentally unwell as a as a core part of being who we are, because it's only been really over the last, honestly, couple of years that we've seen even the international classification of diseases be updated yeah. to remove trans-related ICD codes out of a mental health chapter and into a new sexual health chapter. So it's not surprising that GPs and other clinicians are on a journey, but this research really adds to a pretty unequivocal evidence base now in the literature that says it's not about who we are, it's about how we're able to move through the world. Barriers to being able to move through the world, you know, are unfortunately so great sometimes, including in this country, that uh, life can become very, very unlivable for trans people. And it is devastating to know that the research is telling us that it's our younger ones, you know. And is that surprising, though, given that... You know, we see this relentless media attention and politicking related to trans kids. And that's and increasing, kids, isn't it? Absolutely. And over this period, we're seeing a, a, a sharp increase in media attention based on really flawed mm. uh, flawed research. You know, we've always existed. We've always been here. And I think there's a, there's a, a dreadful myth that suggests that, you know, there's some sort of hormone conveyor belt for trans people and particularly young ones that yeah. being affirmed means that is medicalized but actually yeah. particularly when we're talking about our, our young ones particularly those who are pre-pubertal it's you know get a haircut and be affirmed mm-hmm. by your name and we use your right pronouns and that's the end of it you know and wear whatever clothes you want to wear yeah that's it yeah that medicalization with the shortage or the the small numbers of gps who are involved in in affirming care a lot of the care in this country is involved in specialist clinics in big tertiary centers where you get your hormones where you get your surgery and all and god bless them they need to be there but how much better would it be if most of the care was done in a primary care setting with for example peer navigators helping that process Oh, that would save, save lives. lives, yeah. Yeah, certainly. But in you know what, in New South Wales, we don't have in most other states, really only Victoria, that have a kind of large tertiary kind of setting for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, the young ones certainly do, do access services within a tertiary setting. But I would say that the the key place for gender affirming healthcare is within primary primary care within yeah. GP land. Absolutely, GPs right. can facilitate access, particularly 
to hormones, particularly to gender affirming hormone therapy, yep. bread and butter, really. And it's not complicated medicine, particularly when you realize as a GP that it's not actually about proving that someone's trans or proving that they're distressed enough. Yes. It's about, you know, really recognizing and really cherishing those concepts of self determination and autonomy. But I, I do want to talk about conversion therapy. How much is it a problem here? What is the situation? And I know New South Wales is going through the process now of criminalising it. Where are we at with conversion therapy in this country? We've done papers looking at suicidality among young people and found that conversion practices is a huge predictor of suicidality for young people that have experienced it. I would um, certainly reset that as well across LGBTQ plus populations. including trans populations, conversion practices. And I think it's important that we don't call it conversion therapy because it's not therapeutic. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, you know, conversion practices on the basis of trying to suppress or eliminate someone's sexual orientation or gender is happening every day across this country. Within the medical profession as well? Absolutely. It's any attempts to, you know, dissuade someone from being who they are or saying, no, you're not. That's not who you are. I, you know, kind of I disagree with your assertion of who you are is, a, is, I think, a form of conversion practice. Is it always tied to a religious community or a religious practice? Tends, tends to be and yeah. situated around ideological lines largely. Um, I disagree with who you are. I love <laughs> you anyway, but if you could just, just not be who you are, that would be preferable. What's happening with the criminalisation of conversion practices in New South Wales at the moment? Well, we've had Alex Greenwich, who's an independent um, table, a bill recently mm-hmm. that has been timed along with Sydney World Pride. And um, we've had, in principle, endorsement from all parties uh, to support that bill. And I'm hoping that it will go through relatively smoothly. It includes both sexual orientation and gender identity. If there will be pushback, it will relate to gender. Pushback may come from clinicians in that regard also, but it's very important that that goes it's important that trans people can feel a sense of safety and understanding that we are very much allowed to be who we are and those people that would try to force us to hide that or erase that from ourselves, that that behaviour will be criminalised or unlawful. Nat, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you have to go. Teddy, um, does World Pride come with its own health problems? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, Akon's role over, over World Pride is, has really been about promoting a wide range of health and safety messaging and mm-hmm. also working within the health system to make more services available over the period. So, for instance, you know, we've got a number of GPs that have extended their hours. Um, right. We've got a uh, prevention hub where people can get access to PEP and PrEP and sexual health screening and MPOX vaccinations and COVID vaccinations and wanting to make sure that all visitors and locals attending Sydney World Pride events can stay, you know, safe and well and have a great time. Um, We've released a a health and safety guide as well that's got a whole range of bits of information from swim between the flags to, you know, this is where you can get hormones. Some of the attendees, the the trans scholars attending the Human Rights Conference have been providing them with some information about what it means to travel to Australia as a trans person and how to move through the city as a trans person and what that means and what that looks like. Where does Sydney rate in terms of safety for, for trans folk? Look, I think that's always... 
a bit of a tough question. Uh, what we see in other countries is, you know, often a really direct result of how trans lives are criminalised. We see trans women in particular, particular trans sex workers, trans women of colour specifically who are sex workers uh, are being murdered on the street. And that's a situation that I'm uh, very pleased is not being replicated here. However, um, you know, in many cases, the, the the epidemic that is taking trans lives in Australia is that of suicide. And so in terms of moving around and, and being trans, it really varies depending on where you are and the awful reality of, a, of an oppression called cisgenderism that positions the trans experience as being wrong, but also suggests that there's only one way to be a man and one way to be a woman and any kind of variation of that is, is certainly not okay. And so that means that trans people living more visibly trans out in the world are much more at risk and, um, and much more at risk of harassment across a range of, of domains, harassment and violence. One thing that we do know is that trans people are also some of the most resilient people you've ever met. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing, as I have already over, you know, we had Fair Day over the weekend. I saw, um, yeah. Lots and lots and lots of people, including lots and lots of trans people. It was wonderful to see so many uh, trans flags around and it's been beautiful to see the rise of the Progress Pride flag that has really specific inclusion of the trans flag within it. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm seeing that the city is being inclusive and responsive and vibrant and colourful and it's celebrating diversity in a way that is what we want to be seeing. Are you yeah. concerned that those kind of far-right, anti-trans, anti-gender diverse things are going to come to Australia in a big way? Look, I think they've certainly been trying. You know, for me, it, they certainly are anti-trans, but actually at the core of it, they're anti-choice, anti-self-determination <laughs> and freedom and autonomy. And, you know, there's... Uh, you know, over the last few years, we've we've seen a rise in in bills being tabled that would certainly greatly impact trans people. But yeah. the vast majority of these bills have all been thrown in the bin, which is yeah. not happening in other countries. I think what we have in Australia is a different kind of culture of inclusion. We have a different political system and at least some infrastructure of anti-discrimination legislation that is certainly getting there at both the Commonwealth level and state and territory jurisdiction. For instance, though, in New South Wales, it's not particularly clear in the Anti-Discrimination Act if non-binary people are protected. I tend to certainly see non-binary people as part of having a trans experience and part of the trans community. So there is specific wording in the Anti-Discrimination Act in New South Wales that can be read into being inclusive and protective of, of non-binary people, but we just it's just not as clear as it could be. And the same goes for bisexual people too, you know. Yeah. You know, we always need to be doing more and better in terms of protections for our most vulnerable. And our most vulnerable are sister girls and brother boys and trans mob. How is that community doing? Is it thriving? Yes, absolutely. I mean, sister girls, brother boys and trans mob are part of every single clan group, nation and tribe in the country, yep. even though we certainly hear lots of experiences of sister girls, particularly from the Tiwi Islands. But that population group is large, thriving and everywhere. However, you know, certainly sister girls in particular experience tremendous disparities in terms of health and well-being, in terms mm. of particular criminalisation, incarceration, way too much engagement with the criminal justice system, often just by walking down the street. I attended a memorial service like 
uh, late last year, you know, for a for a sister girl who lost her life. You know, that's something that we are seeing more and more of. And I often say that trans health is in a crisis. And trans health is in crisis for all parts of our communities, but most poignantly for those people living in regional and rural settings, people of colour, sister girls, brother boys, and trans mob. As I said, trans people with disability, trans people yeah. who experience sexual violence, people who very much deserve a, an increase and. In enhancement of care, particularly led by peers, particularly led by community, their own communities. My thanks to Teddy Cook and Natalie Amos for talking with us today about trans health. If you're out there enjoying World Pride, don't forget to party hearty and party safe. Check out sydneyworldpride.com for everything you need to know to maximise your pride experience. I'm Kate Swannell. Talk to you next time. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at The Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.